Section 5 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Sunday, 22nd August. I sent a message to Professor Thomas Gordon, who came and breakfasted with us. He had secured seats for us at the English chapel. We found a respectable congregation and an admirable organ, well played by Mr. Tate. We walked down to the shore. Dr. Johnson laughed to hear that Cromwell's soldiers taught the Aberdeen people to make shoes and stockings and to plant cabbages. He asked if weaving the plaids was ever a domestic art in the highlands like spinning or knitting. They could not inform him here. But he conjectured probably that where people lived so remote from each other it was likely to be a domestic art as we see it was among the ancients from penelope i was sensible to-day to an extraordinary degree of dr johnson's excellent english pronunciation i cannot account for it striking me more now than any other day but it was as if new to me and i listened to every sentence which he spoke as to a musical composition Professor Gordon gave him an account of the plan of education in his college. Dr. Johnson said it was similar to that at Oxford. Waller the poet's great-grandson was studying here. Dr. Johnson wondered that a man should send his son so far off when there were so many good schools in England. He said, At a great school there is all the splendour and illumination of many minds. The radiance of all is concentrated in each, or at least reflected upon each. But we must own that neither a dull boy nor an idle boy will do so well at a great school as at a private one. For at a great school there are always boys enough to do well easily, who are sufficient to keep up the credit of the school, and after whipping being tried to no purpose, the dull or idle boys are left at the end of a class, having the appearance of going through the course, but learning nothing at all. Such boys may do good at a private school, where constant attention is paid to them, and they are watched, so that the question of public or private education is not properly a general one, but whether one or the other is best for my son. We were told the present Mr. Waller was a plain country gentleman, and his son would be such another. I observed a family could not expect a poet, but in a hundred generations. Nay, said Dr. Johnson, not one family in a hundred can expect a poet in a hundred generations. He then repeated Dryden's celebrated lines, three poets in three distant ages born, etc., and a part of a Latin translation of it done at Oxford. He did not then say by whom. He received a card from Sir Alexander Gordon, who had been his acquaintance twenty years ago in London, and who, if forgiven for not answering a line from him, would come in the afternoon. Dr. Johnson rejoiced to hear of him, and begged he would come and dine with us. I was much pleased to see the kindness with which Dr. Johnson received his old friend Sir Alexander, a gentleman of good family, Lismore, but who had not the estate. The King's College here made him Professor of Medicine, which affords him a decent subsistence. 
he told us that the value of the stockings exported from Aberdeen was, in peace, a hundred thousand pounds, and amounted in time of war to one hundred and seventy thousand pounds. Dr. Johnson asked, what made the difference? Here we had a proof of the comparative sagacity of the two professors. Sir Alexander answered, because there is more occasion for them in war. Professor Thomas Gordon answered, because the Germans, who are our great rivals in the manufacture of stockings, are otherwise employed in time of war. Johnson. Sir, you have given a very good solution. At dinner, Dr. Johnson ate several platefuls of Scotch broth, with barley and peas in it, and seemed very fond of the dish. I said, You never ate it before. Johnson. No, sir, but I don't care how soon I eat it again. My cousin Miss Dallas, formerly of Inverness, was married to Mr. Riddoch, one of the ministers of the English chapel here. He was ill and confined to his room, but she sent us a kind invitation to tea, which we all accepted. She was the same lively, sensible, cheerful woman as ever. Dr. Johnson here threw out some jokes against Scotland. He said, You go first to Aberdeen, then to Edinburgh, the Scottish pronunciation of Edinburgh, then to Newcastle to be polished by the colliers, then to York, then to London. And he laid hold of a little girl, Stuart Dallas, niece to Mrs. Riddoch, and representing himself as a giant, said he would take her with him, telling her in a hollow voice that he lived in a cave and had a bed in the rock, and she should have a little bed cut opposite to it. He thus treated the point as to prescription of murder in Scotland. A jury in England would make allowance for deficiencies of evidence on account of lapse of time, but a general rule that a crime should not be punished or tried for the purpose of punishment after twenty years is bad. It is cant to talk of the king's advocate delaying a prosecution from malice. How unlikely is it the king's advocate should have malice against persons who commit murder or should even know them at all? If the son of the murdered man should kill the murderer who got off merely by prescription, I would help him to make his escape, though were I upon his jury I would not acquit him. I would not advise him to commit such an act. On the contrary, I would bid him submit to the determination of society because a man is bound to submit to the inconvenience of it as he enjoys the good, but the young man, though politically wrong, would not be morally wrong. He would have to say, Here I am amongst barbarians, who not only refuse to do justice, but encourage the greatest of all crimes. I am therefore in a state of nature, for so far as there is no law, it is a state of nature and consequently upon the internal and immutable law of justice which requires that he who sheds man's blood should have his blood shed i will stab the murderer of my father we went to our inn and sat quietly dr johnson borrowed at mr riddock's a volume of massillon's discourses on the psalms but i found he read little in it ogden too he sometimes took up and glanced at but threw it down again. I then entered upon religious conversation. Never did I see him in a better frame, calm, gentle, wise, holy. I said, would not the same objection hold against the Trinity as against transubstantiation? Yes, said he, if you take three and one in the same sense. 
if you do so, to be sure you cannot believe it. But the three persons in the Godhead are three in one sense and one in another. We cannot tell how, and that is the mystery. I spoke of the satisfaction of Christ. He said his notion was that it did not atone for the sins of the world. But by satisfying divine justice, by showing that no less than the Son of God suffered for sin, it showed to men and innumerable created beings the heinousness of it, and therefore rendered it unnecessary for divine vengeance to be exercised against sinners as it otherwise must have been, that in this way it might operate even in favour of those who had never heard of it. As to those who did hear of it, the effect it should produce would be repentance and piety by impressing upon the mind a just notion of sin, that original sin was the propensity to evil which no doubt was occasioned by the fool. He presented this solemn subject in a new light to me, and rendered much more rational and clear the doctrine of what our Saviour has done for us, as it removed the notion of imputed righteousness in cooperating, whereas by this view Christ has done all already that he had to do, or is ever to do, for mankind by making his great satisfaction, the consequences of which will affect each individual according to the particular conduct of each. I would illustrate this by saying that Christ's satisfaction resembles a sun placed to show light to men, so that it depends on themselves whether they will walk the right way or not, which they could not have done without that sun, the sun of righteousness. There is, however, more in it than merely giving light, a light to lighten the Gentiles, for we are told there is healing under his wings. Dr. Johnson said to me, Richard Baxter commends a treatise by Grotius, De Satisfactione Christi. I have never read it, but I intend to read it, and you may read it. I remarked upon the principle now laid down, we might explain the difficult and seemingly hard texts, they that believe shall be saved, and they that believe not shall be damned. They that believe shall have such an impression made upon their minds, as will make them act, so that they may be accepted by God. We talked of one of our friends taking ill, for a length of time, a hasty expression of Dr. Johnson's to him, on his attempting to prosecute a subject that had a reference to religion beyond the bounds within which the doctor thought such topics should be confined in a mixed company. Johnson, what is to become of society if a friendship of twenty years is to be broken off for such a cause? As Bacon says, who then to frail mortality shall trust but limes the water or but writes in dust? I said he should write expressly in support of Christianity, for that, although a reverence for it shines through his works in several places, that is not enough. You know, said I, what Grotius has done and what Addison has done. You should do also. He replied, I hope I shall. Monday, 23rd August. Principal Campbell, Sir Alexander Gordon, Professor Gordon and Professor Ross, visited us in the morning, as did Dr. Gerard, who had come six miles from the country on purpose. We went and saw the Marischal College, and at one o'clock we waited on the magistrates in the town hall, as they had invited us in order to present Dr. Johnson with the freedom of the town, 
which Provost Jopp did with a very good grace. Dr. Johnson was much pleased with this mark of attention, and received it very politely. There was a pretty numerous company assembled. It was striking to hear all of them drinking Dr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson in the town hall of Aberdeen, and then to see him with his Burgess ticket or diploma in his hat, which he wore as he walked along the street, according to the usual custom. It gave me great satisfaction to observe the regard, and indeed fondness too, which everybody here had for my father. While Sir Alexander Gordon conducted Dr. Johnson to Old Aberdeen, Professor Gordon and I called on Mr. Riddoch, whom I found to be a grave, worthy clergyman. He observed that, whatever might be said of Dr. Johnson while he was alive, he would, after he was dead, be looked upon by the world with regard and astonishment on account of his dictionary. Professor Gordon and I walked over to the old college, which Dr. Johnson had seen by this time. I stepped into the chapel and looked at the tomb of the founder, Archbishop Elphinstone, of whom I shall have occasion to write in my history of James the Fourth of Scotland, the patron of my family. We dined at Sir Alexander Gordon's. The provost, Professor Ross, Professor Dunbar, Professor Thomas Gordon were there. After dinner came in Dr. Gerard, Professor Leslie, Professor MacLeod. We had little or no conversation in the morning. Now we were but barren. The professors seemed afraid to speak. Dr. Gerard told us that an eminent printer was very intimate with Warburton. Johnson, why, sir, he has printed some of his works and perhaps bought the property of some of them. The intimacy is such as one of the professors here may have with one of the carpenters who is repairing the college. But, said Gerard, I saw a letter from him to this printer in which he says that the one half of the clergy of the Church of Scotland are fanatics and the other half infidels. Johnson, Warburton has accustomed himself to write letters just as he speaks without thinking any more of what he throws out. When I read Warburton first, and observed his force and his contempt of mankind, I thought he had driven the world before him. But I soon found that was not the case, for Warburton, by extending his abuse, rendered it ineffectual. He told me, when we were by ourselves, that he thought it very wrong in the printer to show Warburton's letter, as it was raising a body of enemies against him. He thought it foolish in Warburton to write so to the printer, and added, Sir, the worst way of being intimate is by scribbling. He called Warburton's doctrine of grace a poor performance, and so, he said, was Wesley's answer. Warburton, he observed, had laid himself very open. In particular, he was weak enough to say that in some disorders of the imagination people had spoken with tongues, had spoken languages which they never knew before, a thing as absurd as to say that in some disorders of the imagination people had been known to fly. I talked of the difference of genius to try if I could engage Gerard in a disquisition with Dr. Johnson, but I did not succeed. I mentioned as a curious fact that Locke had written verses. Johnson, I know of none, sir but a kind of exercise prefixed to Dr. Sydenham's works, in which he has some conceits about the dropsy, 
in which water and burning are united, and how Dr. Sydenham removed fire by drawing off water, contrary to the usual practice, which is to extinguish fire by bringing water upon it. I am not sure that there is a word of all this, but it is such kind of talk. We spoke of Fingal. Dr. Johnson said calmly, if the poems were really translated, they were certainly first written down. Let Mr. Macpherson deposit the manuscript in one of the colleges at Aberdeen, where there are people who can judge, and if the professors certify the authenticity, then there will be an end of the controversy. If he does not take this obvious and easy method, he gives the best reason to doubt, considering, too, how much is against it a priori. We sauntered after dinner in Sir Alexander's garden, and saw his little grotto, which is hung with pieces of poetry written in a fair hand. It was agreeable to observe the contentment and kindness of this quiet, benevolent man. Professor MacLeod was brother to MacLeod of Talisker, and brother-in-law to the Laird of Col. He gave me a letter to young Col. I was weary of this day, and began to think wistfully of being again in motion. I was uneasy to think myself too fastidious, whilst I fancied Dr. Johnson quite satisfied. But he owned to me that he was fatigued, and teased by Sir Alexander's doing too much to entertain him. I said it was all kindness. Johnson, true, sir, but sensation is sensation. Boswell, it is so. We feel pain equally from the surgeon's probe as from the sword of the foe. We visited two booksellers' shops and could not find Arthur Johnston's poems. We went and sat near an hour at Mr. Riddock's. He could not tell distinctly how much education at the college here costs, which disgusted Dr. Johnston. I had pledged myself that we should go to the inn and not stay supper. They pressed us, but he was resolute. I saw Mr. Riddock did not please him. He said to me afterwards, Sir, he has no vigour in his talk. But my friend should have considered that he himself was not in good humour, so that it was not easy to talk to his satisfaction. We sat contentedly at our inn. He then became merry, and observed how little we had either heard or said at Aberdeen, that the Abedonians had not started a single Morkin, the Scottish word for hare, for us to pursue. Tuesday, 24th August we set out about eight in the morning and breakfasted at Ellen. The landlady said to me, Is not this the great doctor that is going about through the country? I said, Yes. Aye, said she, we heard of him. I made an errand into the room on purpose to see him. There's something great in his appearance. It is a pleasure to have such a man in one's house, a man who does so much good. If I had thought of it, I would have shown him a child of mine who has had a lump on his throat for some time. But, said I, he's not a doctor of physic. Is he an oculist? said the landlord. No, said I, he is only a very learned man. Landlord, they say he is the greatest man in England except Lord Mansfield. Dr. Johnson was highly entertained with this, and I do think he was pleased too. He said, I like the exception. To have called me the greatest man in England would have been an unmeaning compliment. 
but the exception marked that the praise was in earnest, and in Scotland the exception must be Lord Mansfield or Sir John Pringle. He told me a good story of Dr Goldsmith. Graham, who wrote Telemachus a mask, was sitting one night with him and Dr Johnson and was half drunk. He rattled away to Dr Johnson. You're a clever fellow to be sure, but you cannot write an essay like Addison or verses like The Rape of the Lock. At last he said, Doctor, I shall be happy to see you at Eton. I shall be glad to wait on you, answered Goldsmith. No, said Graham, tis not you I mean, Dr Minor, tis Dr Major there. Goldsmith was excessively hurt by this. He afterwards spoke of it himself. Graham, said he, is a fellow to make one commit suicide. We had received a polite invitation to Slane's Castle. We arrived there just at three o'clock, as the bell for dinner was ringing. Though from its being just on the northeast ocean no trees will grow here, Lord Errol has done all that can be done. He has cultivated his fields so as to bear rich crops of every kind, and he has made an excellent kitchen garden with a hothouse. I had never seen any of the family, but there has been a card of invitation written by the Honourable Charles Boyd, the Earl's brother. We were conducted into the house, and at the dining-room door were met by that gentleman, whom both of us at first took to be Lord Errol, but he soon corrected our mistake. My lord was gone to dine in the neighbourhood at an entertainment given by Mr. Irvin of Drum. Lady Errol received us politely and was very attentive to us during the time of dinner. There was nobody at table but her ladyship, Mr. Boyd, and some of the children, their governor and governess. Mr. Boyd put Dr. Johnson in mind of having dined with him at Cumming, the Quakers, along with Mr. Hall and Miss Williams. This was a bond of connection between them. For me, Mr. Boyd's acquaintance with my father was enough. After dinner, Lady Errol favoured us with a sight of her young family, whom she made stand up in a row. There were six daughters and two sons. It was a very pleasing sight. Dr. Johnson proposed our setting out. Mr. Boyd said he hoped we would stay all night. His brother would be at home in the evening and would be very sorry if he missed us. Mr. Boyd was called out of the room. I was very desirous to stay in so comfortable a house and I wished to see Lord Errol. Dr. Johnson, however, was right in resolving to go, if we were not asked again, as it is best to err on the safe side in such cases, and to be sure that one is quite welcome. To my great joy, when Mr. Boyd returned, he told Dr. Johnson that it was Lady Errol who had called him out, and said that she would never let Dr. Johnson into the house again if he went away that night and that she had ordered the coach to carry us to view a great curiosity on the coast, after which we should see the house. We cheerfully agreed. Mr. Boyd was engaged in 1745-6 to on the same side with many unfortunate mistaken noblemen and gentlemen. He escaped and lay concealed for a year in the island of Arran, the ancient territory of the Boyds. He then went to France and was about twenty years on the continent. He married a French lady and now lived very comfortably at Aberdeen and was much at Slane's Castle. He entertained us with great civility. 
he had a pompousness or formal plenitude in his conversation which i did not dislike dr johnson said there was too much elaboration in his talk it gave me pleasure to see him a steady branch of the family setting forth all its advantages with much zeal he told us that lady errol was one of the most pious and sensible women in the island had a good head and as good a heart he said she did not use force or fear in educating her children johnson sir she is wrong i would rather have the rod to be the general terror to all to make them learn than tell a child if you do thus or thus you'll be more esteemed than your brothers or sisters the rod produces an effect which terminates in itself a child is afraid of being whipped and gets his task and there's an end on't whereas by exciting emulation and comparisons of superiority you lay the foundation of lasting mischief you make brothers and sisters hate each other during mr boyd's stay in arran he had found a chest of medical books left by a surgeon there and had read them till he acquired some skill in physic in consequence of which he is often consulted by the poor there were several here waiting for him as patients we walked round the house till stopped by a cut made by the influx of the sea the house is built quite upon the shore the windows look upon the main ocean and the king of denmark is lord errol's nearest neighbour on the north-east we got immediately into the coach and drove to dunbuie a rock near the shore quite covered with sea-fowls then to a circular basin of large extent surrounded with tremendous rocks on the quarter next the sea there is a high arch in the rock which the force of the tempest has driven out this place is called buchan's buller or the buller of buchan and the country people call it the pot mr boyd said it was so called from the french bouloir it may be more simply traced from boiler in our own language we walked round this monstrous cauldron in some places the rock is very narrow and on each side there is a sea deep enough for a man of war to ride in so that it is somewhat horrid to move along however there is earth and grass upon the rock and a kind of road marked out by the print of feet so that one makes it out pretty safely yet it alarmed me to see dr johnson striding irregularly along he insisted on taking a boat and sailing into the pot we did so he was stout and wonderfully alert the buchan men all showing their teeth and speaking with that strange sharp accent which distinguishes them was to me a matter of curiosity he was not sensible of the difference of pronunciation in the south and north of scotland which i wondered at as the entry into the buller is so narrow that oars cannot be used as you go in the method taken is to row very hard when you come near it and give the boat such a rapidity of motion that it glides in dr johnson observed what an effect this scene would have had were we entering into an unknown place there are caves of considerable depth i think one on each side the boatman had never entered either of them far enough to know the size mr boyd told us that it is customary for the company at peterhead well to make parties and come and dine in one of the caves here he told us that as Slane's is at a considerable distance from Aberdeen, Lord Errol, who has a very large family, resolved to have a surgeon of his own. 
With this view, he educated one of his tenant's sons, who is now settled in a very neat house and farm just by, which we saw from the road. By the salary which the Earl allows him, and the practice which he has had, he is in very easy circumstances. He has kept an exact account of all that had been laid out on his education, and he came to his lordship one day, and told him that he had arrived at much higher situation than ever he expected, that he was now able to repay what his lordship had advanced, and begged he would accept of it. The earl was pleased with the generous gratitude and genteel offer of the man, but refused it. Mr. Boyd also told us, coming the Quaker first began to distinguish himself by writing against Dr. Leachman on prayer, to prove it unnecessary, as God knows best what should be, and will order it without our asking, the old hackneyed objection. When we returned to the house, we found coffee and tea in the drawing-room. Lady Errol was not there, being, as I supposed, engaged with her young family. There is a bow-window fronting the sea. Dr. Johnson repeated the ode, Yum Satis Terris, while Mr. Boyd was with his patients. He spoke well in favour of entails to preserve lines of men whom mankind were accustomed to reverence. His opinion was that so much land should be entailed as that families should never fall into contempt and as much left free as to give them all the advantages of property in case of any emergency. If, said he, the nobility are suffered to sink into indigence, they of course become corrupt. They are ready to do whatever the king chooses. Therefore it is fit they should be kept from becoming poor, unless it is fixed that when they fall below a certain standard of wealth they shall lose their peerages. We know the House of Peers have made noble stands when the House of Commons durst not. The two last years of Parliament they dare not contradict the populace. This room is ornamented with a number of fine prints, and with a whole length picture of Lord Errol by Sir Joshua Reynolds. This led Dr. Johnson and me to talk of our amiable and elegant friend, whose panegyric he concluded by saying, Sir Joshua Reynolds, sir, is the most invulnerable man I know, the man with whom, if you should quarrel, you would find the most difficulty how to abuse. Dr. Johnson observed the situation here was the noblest he had ever seen, better than Mount Edgecombe, reckoned the first in England, because at Mount Edgecombe the sea is bounded by land on the other side, and though there is the grandeur of a fleet, there is also the impression of there being a dockyard, the circumstances of which are not agreeable. At Slane's is an excellent old house. The noble owner has built of brick, along the square in the inside, a gallery, both on the first and second storey, the house being no higher, so that he has always a dry walk, and the rooms, to which formerly there was no approach but through each other, have now all separate entries from the gallery, which is hung with Hogarth's works and other prints. We went and sat a while in the library. There is a valuable, numerous collection. It was chiefly made by Mr. Falconer, husband to the late Countess of Errol in her own right. This Earl has added a good many modern books. About nine the Earl came home. Captain Gordon of Park was with him. His lordship put Dr. Johnson in mind of their having dined together in London, along with Mr. Beauclerk. 
I was exceedingly pleased with Lord Errol. His dignified person and agreeable countenance, with the most unaffected affability, gave me high satisfaction. From perhaps a weakness, or as I rather hope more fancy and warmth of feeling than is quite reasonable, my mind is ever impressed with admiration for persons of high birth, and I could with the most perfect honesty expatiate on Lord Errol's good qualities, but he stands in no need of my praise. His agreeable manners and softness of address prevented that constraint which the idea of his being Lord High Constable of Scotland might otherwise have occasioned. He talked very easily and sensibly with his learned guest. I observed that Dr. Johnson, though he showed that respect to his lordship which, from principle, he always does to high rank, yet, when they came to argument, maintained that manliness which becomes the force and vigour of his understanding. To show external deference to our superiors is proper, to seem to yield to them in opinion is meanness. The Earl said grace, both before and after supper, with much decency. He told us a story of a man who was executed at Perth some years ago for murdering a woman who was with child by him, and a former child he had by her. His hand was cut off, he was then pulled up, but the rope broke, and he was forced to lie an hour on the ground till another rope was brought from Perth, the execution being in a wood at some distance, at the place where the murders were committed. There, said my lord, I see the hand of Providence. I was really happy here. I saw in this nobleman the best dispositions and best principles, and I saw him in my mind's eye to be the representative of the ancient Boyds of Kilmarnock. I was afraid he might have urged drinking, as I believe he used formerly to do, but he drank port and water out of a large glass himself, and let us do as we pleased. He went with us to our rooms at night, said he took the visit very kindly, and told me my father and he were very old acquaintance, that I now knew the way to Slane's, and he hoped to see me there again. I had a most elegant room, but there was a fire in it which blazed, and the sea, to which my windows looked, roared, and the pillows were made of the feathers of some sea-fowl which had to me a disagreeable smell, so that by all these causes I was kept awake a good while. I saw in imagination Lord Errol's father, Lord Kilmarnock, who was beheaded on Tower Hill in 1746, and I was somewhat dreary. But the thought did not last long, and I fell asleep. End of section 5